Welcome to Looking Deeper, the podcast for the preaching ministry of Berean Baptist Church in Grand Rapids, Michigan. My name is Marcus Little, and I'm the senior pastor of that congregation. We are of the conviction that the people of God, the Spirit of God, and the Word of God are enough to bring about the purposes of God for our lives and for the world. Because of that, we view preaching not as a one-way activity, but as a conversation. Please feel free to join us in that conversation by emailing me at marcus at bereangr.org or through our Facebook page, or better yet, by visiting us in person sometime for our Sunday services. We meet at 10.30 a.m. at the corner of Coit and Sweet in Northeast Grand Rapids. For now, I trust that God's Spirit will speak to God's people through this part of God's Word. We're continuing in our series in Jeremiah. We've titled it Tale of Tears. Last week, I asked us the question, why is it that we cry so much? Why are there so many tears? We talked about the ways in which we perpetuate, we cause to continue to go on and on and on these cycles of sin and unrighteousness and violence, and that God's heart is not to contribute to those by adding to our disastrous ways with disaster upon disaster, but to break the cycle altogether if only we will let him. And the question that I have for us this morning is how we endure through the tears that we shed. How do we endure through the tears that we shed? And I want to suggest that one of the things that makes enduring through tears to continue on in the midst of grief that seems crushing when there seems to be no light at the end of the tunnel that it's especially difficult when we feel that we grieve alone, when our grief is unseen, when we wonder, does anyone see my grief? Do they know it? Do they care about it? We cannot actually bear one another's griefs, but we know the experience of grieving when no one seems to see or know or to care. We know the awkwardness when we've experienced loss of encountering people who may know about the loss but not know how to speak, not know how to give visibility to that grief. So we're going to talk today about how we are seen in the midst of our grief. And so in thinking about this and thinking about this idea of how do we know whether we are seen? Who is it that is seen? I wonder if you know the name Philo Farnsworth. You probably don't. I only know it because of a reference in a show that I watched a couple of decades ago where his story was told. Philo Farnsworth was the inventor of television. The actual apparatus in 1927 in Provo, Utah, in a workshop at his house, he invented the mechanism that allowed for the transmission of images through the airwaves and to become images on a screen. Philo Farnsworth is not someone of note. We know Thomas Edison. We know Alexander Graham Bell. We know the men and women that have invented significant technologies, and yet it's hard to imagine a technology that has, has had more of an impact in the last century on our everyday lives and on the movements and significant events of our race and our planet than the television, and yet the vast majority of people could not name the person responsible for it. And from what I'm told of his story, he died alone and without fortune after having made this Tremendous contribution, for good or for ill. We know the television can go both ways, like every technology. And yet he died in obscurity, relatively speaking. 
most of us live lives of obscurity. We are known to the people that know us personally. And even in this age of social media, the majority of us are not known to people other than the people that are directly in our lives. And it can feel at times, especially when we are dealing with difficulty, does it matter? Am I seen? We are conditioned to think that prominence, that having some degree of visibility and fame, a platform, a brand, is a measure of a life well lived. It causes us to question whether or not we are contributing anything meaningful. There's an analogy between Philo Farnsworth, I think, and Jeremiah that comes across in Jeremiah 36, which is our passage for today. Jeremiah, as I've said, is an interesting figure. He made a significant contribution to the spiritual life of the people of Israel in his own time, but especially after his time. The book that we are engaged in is the largest book of the Old Testament, making Jeremiah the majority contributor to the work of Scripture. No other single individual left behind that sizable a book. And so he makes this enormous contribution, and yet in his own time, he was relatively unknown. Consider what we talked about last week. That there was another prophet active during Jeremiah's time that had attracted the hostile attention of the king. Uriah was his name. More significantly, if you remember a couple of years ago when we were preaching through 2 Kings, 2 Kings 22 that talks about the reforms that the king Josiah instituted, five years after Jeremiah's ministry had begun, when the scroll of Deuteronomy is found in the temple and brought to the king, and Josiah needs instruction about what to do with it, how to apply it, Jeremiah, who has been ministering for five years already, calling for these very sorts of reforms, is not the prophet Josiah seeks out. Instead, he sends his officials to Huldah the prophetess, and she tells the king what to do. Jeremiah, in other words, is not apparently seen to be the premier prophet of his day, even though Huldah and Uriah left no written accounts that we know of, and are only mentioned briefly in the narratives of the Old Testament. And then, of course, we saw last week that there are lots of prophets in Israel, most of whom have the king's ear more than Jeremiah does, and of course, many of them Jeremiah regards as false prophets. And then, of course, there's the whole body of priests of which Jeremiah is also a part There's a crowd of voices, in other words, and it seems that Jeremiah's didn't succeed in cutting through the noise. He doesn't have a large audience, it seems. As we're going to see today in the text in Jeremiah 36, Jeremiah says to his companion Baruch that he has been banned from the temple, that he's not even allowed to go into the temple. He's a priest, and somehow he's gotten himself banned from the temple. So he's prophesying in what seems to be a junior priestly capacity. He doesn't have a large audience. There's plenty of other prophets to choose from, true and false. And then the very interesting thing that I noticed last week for the first time is Jeremiah can't even get himself properly martyred. He goes to the trouble of preaching the truth boldly and stands trial, and he doesn't even get killed so that he has this legacy of being martyred. He just gets hidden away into further obscurity. Not that that's a bad outcome, but just you think about the great heroes of the faith, and oftentimes their stories end in martyrdom, and that's part of their legacy, and he can't even get that much attention from the king. 
He's not worth sending the hit squad down to Egypt like Uriah was. And so we come to Jeremiah 36. And remember that the book is not arranged chronologically, so we are skipping around, it seems, but I'm trying to tell the story in order. And so Jeremiah 36, 2, God speaks to Jeremiah and says, Take a scroll and write on it all the words that I have spoken to you against Israel and against Judah and all the nations from the day I spoke to you from the days of Josiah until today. This is following the events that we talked about last week where Jeremiah has stood in the temple courts and proclaimed that destruction is coming unless there is repentance. And then three years went by and the may became will. It's a certainty that Babylon is coming now to destroy the temple and Jerusalem. And after this, and that may be why Jeremiah is banned from the temple, God says, now start writing things down. Jeremiah has been preaching and prophesying for 20 years. And from everything that we can tell, he hasn't written any of it down. Like most prophets in Israel, most of the prophets were not writers. This was something that was done orally and was received orally. It was something that was spoken and heard. And that has been the way that God has operated through most of history, is men and women speaking God's word aloud and God's people together hearing it and receiving it and hopefully heeding it. But now it becomes written. And this is a caution for us. We are people of the book. We are devoted to the truths contained in Scripture, the writings. And yet, throughout most of the history of God's people, the word has first and foremost been a spoken reality. It is written down at various times for various reasons, and the text that we're looking at today is one of the few places in Scripture where we get a glimpse at how this book came to us. The book of Jeremiah, yes, but also a glimpse into how the word that God spoke through his people throughout generations came to us in this written form. It's a fascinating story. And so God says, write it down, Jeremiah. Write all of it down. 20 years of preaching in written form. That sounds like a lot. It is. Most scholars believe that the first 20 or so chapters of the book of Jeremiah are this scroll. That Jeremiah writes from memory the things he has said. No doubt summarizing, no doubt perhaps reframing the wording suitable to poetry and writing, but he's now writing it down. And he writes this scroll. Except he doesn't actually write the scroll. Jeremiah 36 tells us this story that Jeremiah speaks the words to Baruch, about whom we know very little, except that he is a scribe and capable of writing. And so Baruch is the one who writes down the words by Jeremiah's dictation. And then Jeremiah tells Baruch, because I've been banned from going to the temple, you're going to have to take this scroll, and you're going to have to stand in the temple courts, and you're going to read it out loud there. Based on how things went the last time Jeremiah stood in the temple courts and said things out loud, Baruch no doubt felt a little bit intimidated, but he goes, and he reads it aloud. And then there is this transmission process that takes place. If you read through the chapter, no fewer than eight times are the words that Jeremiah spoke to Baruch in the first place repeated in the hearing of others. Jeremiah speaks them to Baruch, and he writes them down. Baruch goes to the temple and reads them aloud. Then some of the king's officials who hear this are told 
the words. They then go and tell the king. The king then says, I need to read the scroll for myself and has it brought to him and he hears the words. Again, no fewer than eight times the words are repeated. And it's clear that the officials believe that, remember last week, the officials were the ones who said, Jeremiah isn't a false prophet. They don't necessarily do anything with his message by way of response, but they at least say, no, this man is speaking from God. And they hear the words that Baruch says from Jeremiah, and they inquire of Baruch, are these really Jeremiah's words? And Baruch says, yes, he dictated them to me and I wrote them down. And they say, the king must hear this. And so they bring the scroll to the king. And the words are read aloud, and we're told that it is during winter, and so there is a fire in a, a, a brazier, a metal basin, in the king's chambers that he's sitting by to keep warm. And as the scroll is read, the king tears off three or four columns at a time as the scroll is read and burns it in the fire. So there's a challenge presented. God has said to Jeremiah, write it all down, and the king, upon hearing it read, burns it to ash. There is a challenge here, and we see this in verses 24 and 25, where it says that neither the king nor any of his servants who heard all these words were afraid, nor did they tear their garments. Even when Elnathan and Deliah and Gemariah urged the king not to burn the scroll, he would not listen to them. It's interesting what it says here. It says they weren't afraid and they didn't listen, but it also says they didn't tear their garments. And there's something deliberate going on here in the telling of the story. Because the king is tearing this scroll that has been brought with the words of the prophet calling for repentance. And our minds should immediately connect to the story I mentioned earlier where the scroll of Deuteronomy was found and brought to the king and read aloud to him. And Josiah, that king, Jehoiakim's father, when hearing the words of that scroll, tore his garments, recognizing that disaster was imminent because of the disastrous ways of the people running contrary to God's word through Moses. That king tore his garments when he heard the words. This king tears the scroll. There's a direct contrast that is being made between the response of this king and his father when hearing the word of God. Verse 29, Baruch comes back to Jeremiah and says, well, here's how it went. I don't have your scroll anymore. And God gives Jeremiah another word to create another scroll. It says, and concerning Jehoiakim, king of Judah, you shall say, thus says Yahweh, you have burned this scroll, saying, why have you written in it that the king of Babylon will certainly come and destroy this land and will cut off from it man and beast? We have to understand why the king is so bothered by the words of the scroll. The words of the scroll are essentially, the king of Babylon is coming and will destroy this temple and remove the Davidic line from the kingship. It's coming to an end. And at the moment that Jeremiah writes this scroll, Babylon is on the move. They are attacking and conquering and subduing every small kingdom in Judah's neighborhood. And Judah is certainly on the list. 
And Jeremiah has spoken, as we heard earlier in the chapter prior to this, about the Rechabites. And he's holding up these two examples saying, you have a choice to be faithful to what God has called you to be, like the Rechabites have been faithful to their ancestors' traditions. The point is not that there's anything virtuous about the traditions of the Rechabites. Their virtue is their faithfulness. They are a model of what it means to become the people that we are supposed to be. Whereas Judah has not been faithful to be the people that God has called them to be. Jehoiakim is caught between this rock and a hard place. I think it's important to bear in mind, it's easy to think of Jehoiakim as this grizzled old king, like a Scrooge character, a Grinch, whose heart was just two sizes too small, and he's just, you know, past hope. Jehoiakim is under 30 years of age. His father was killed in battle, and his younger brother, who was put on the throne by the people, which may have been a way of getting around Jehoiakim's status as the rightful heir to the throne, that brother was removed by the king of Egypt, and Jehoiakim was put in his place, and his name was changed. This is a young man facing unbelievable pressure. I cannot imagine the scope of his responsibility and the pressures weighing on him. An upstart new empire from the north taking claim to everything in its path and the historic empire of Egypt to the south that has put him on the throne, what is he to do? It does not excuse his failure to listen, but I think some sympathy towards him is not unwarranted. He's living in an incredibly difficult moment and has impossible responsibilities. But his response is not to receive God's word of grace and life favorably, but instead to imagine that he can figure this out and that Jeremiah is a dangerous character for saying that the Babylonians will win. He sees him as a traitor and a threat rather than the voice of hope. And he destroys the scroll. And this really messes with our notions of Scripture, right? What did Jesus say? Not the slightest jot or tittle, not a blot of ink will ever be erased. Well, how did Jehoiakim, where's the Holy Spirit shield around the written word? It goes up in smoke, literally. It gets more interesting. Verse 32, at the end of the chapter. Then Jeremiah took another scroll and gave it to Baruch the scribe, the son of Neriah, who wrote on it at the dictation of Jeremiah all the words of the scroll that Jehoiakim king of Judah had burned in the fire. And many similar words were added to them. See the problem? Which one should we have in the Bible? The first one? Or the one we end up with, with added words? What happens if Jehoiakim doesn't burn the scroll? We get a shorter Bible. Are we going to miss something? Or is the, we're not supposed to add to the word of God. And here's Jeremiah adding to the word of God. I want to suggest that this text is beautiful for a variety of reasons, and it is, as I said, a glimpse into how we get the Scriptures. And one of the things that stands out to me, especially as we consider the Rechabites, is that the Word of God, as it is written, there is nothing magical about the written text. There is nothing supernaturally powerful about the written text on its own as an artifact. And if you doubt that, consider what happened when it was read aloud to the king. It had no effect. He stopped up his ears. He was not afraid. 
And instead of tearing his garments, he tore the scroll and destroyed it. The written word on its own is just that. It's a written word. And we have to ask the question, given the threat of royalty and royal power wielded against this written word, how is it we wound up with the first half of the book of Jeremiah? It's because of this scene. It's because Jeremiah does not need it to be written down in order to have it. It's within him. You want to kill the word, you're going to have to kill Jeremiah. And so Jeremiah dictates it again. But even that, there is a question here of who wrote this chapter, chapter 36. The stories told of Jeremiah in this book seem to come from the hand of someone else. They are stories about Jeremiah rather than stories by Jeremiah. And so I want to elevate out of obscurity the other characters in this story. Firstly, Baruch. Without Baruch, we don't have the book of Jeremiah. Baruch, from all we know, is just someone who was a temple scribe, and he may at some point along the 20 years that Jeremiah preached, heard Jeremiah and said, this guy is speaking words we need to hear. At some point, he might need to write some things down. I can do that. And then we have the royal officials, all of whom are named in the chapter. I encourage you to go through the chapter and see that without their involvement, we don't have this book preserved. In other words, Jeremiah is not alone. We often think, as I have, that Jeremiah was this solitary figure standing at times raving like a madman in the temple courts hoping somebody would listen and nobody ever did. And the evidence is quite the reverse, that there were people around Jeremiah who believed in him. They're, the reason he doesn't get martyred in the text last week is because one of the king's servants protects him. Later on, there will be another attempt on his life and someone will rescue him. They are embodying the word that Jeremiah is speaking, and that's why it is transmitted. I think oftentimes we can put too great a value on the idea that this has been preserved by a process of copying and recopying and recopying, and that is true. But the reason anyone thought it was worth copying is because it had already been written on their hearts. The word of God is not threatened if pages are burned and destroyed as long as it lives in the hearts of those who have heard it. That is how the word preserves and endures. And it doesn't just endure, it expands. I think oftentimes we are keen to put limits around the word of God. But Jeremiah adds words here and then Baruch and his disciples add to this book to tell us about Jeremiah. It lives on, it multiplies. Jesus talks about this in the parable of the sower. The seed is the word, and what does the word do? It multiplies, bearing fruit in life after life after life. So you don't know about Philo Farnsworth, and unless the reason you know about Philo Farnsworth is the same reason I do because of a reference in a TV show, you definitely don't know about Cliff Gardner. Cliff Gardner is his brother-in-law. And Cliff Gardner, as the story goes, realized what his brother-in-law was trying to do and said, you are scary smart and brilliant to think that you can get images transmitted through the airwaves on a glass tube. And I have no idea what's going on with the science there, but he says, you're going to need some glass tubes in order to do this. And I can make glass tubes. He taught himself how to blow glass tubes, and he set up a workshop in Philo's backyard and he made all of the tubes that Philo Farnsworth used to test and retest until finally they had something that produced an image. 
Cliff Gardner could make glass tubes, and that was his contribution. I think we often focus on the people at the center of the story, and we forget all of the people who contribute to what they accomplish. And we might well ask the question, because we are not the people at the center of the story, it seems. We're not authors of Scripture. Hundreds of years from now, very few of us will be remembered for anything that we said or did by anyone. And it raises this question, does God see me? Does my life matter? It's reasonable to ask that question because the story of history is that little people, and I take that label <laughs> gladly, little people pay the price for the achievements of great people. Wars are won and lost on the backs and with the blood of little people. The great do not die in their own wars. The economy, when it crashes, it is the scene and it's a wonderful life. It's the little savings and loan clients that have their accounts wiped out. The billionaires just have a few fewer billions. And so it is reasonable to ask in this world that we live in, do we matter? Are we seen by God? It would be reasonable for Baruch as he stands in the temple court and reads that scroll knowing the attitude of the king, and then having the officials say, we need to read this to the king, and they actually say to Baruch, we're going to take the scroll and read it to the king. You and Jeremiah need to scram. You need to find a hole somewhere and hide. And they do. And it's a good thing, too, because the king does call for Jeremiah's head, and the text just says, God hid him. It'd be easy for Baruch to say, all well and good, Jeremiah is the one that had this conversation with God at the start of the story, that God knew him from before he was born and called him to be a prophet to the nations and to break things down. And, but now I'm the tip of the spear. I'm the one standing in the court reading the scroll. What about me? It's perfectly reasonable to imagine that Baruch asked that question. But we don't have to imagine that he asked it because we're told that he did in Jeremiah 45. Jeremiah 45 brackets this section of narrative and calls attention back to this episode. And it says this, the word that Jeremiah the prophet spoke to Baruch, the son of Neriah, when he wrote these words in a book at the dictation of Jeremiah in the fourth year of Jehoiakim, the son of Josiah, king of Judah. At the time that Baruch was writing this scroll on behalf of Jeremiah and being sent to read it, Jeremiah said something to Baruch. Thus says Yahweh, the God of Israel, to you, O Baruch, you said, woe is me, for Yahweh has added sorrow to my pain. I am weary with my groaning, and I find no rest. Baruch has endured every step of the 20-year journey that Jeremiah has been on. He says, woe is me. Thus shall you say to him, thus says Yahweh, behold, what I have built, I am breaking down, and what I have planted, I am plucking up. That is the whole land. God repeats the message that he's been giving through Jeremiah to Baruch. And then he says this, And do you seek great things for yourself? In other words, God has been on a project of creating a people and restoring the land, creation, to the state that it was intended to be in. And it's at a moment where the disastrous ways of the people are leading to the very disaster God is trying to avert and God says, I am not done working. 
I am paying a price for the disastrous ways of my people. And are you seeking great things for yourself? Seek them not. For behold, I am bringing disaster upon all flesh, declares Yahweh, but I will give you your life as a prize of war in all places to which you may go. Baruch, in essence, asks, am I seen by God or is my life just one of lonely pain and misery as I follow this prophet around, this good friend of mine? And God says emphatically, yes, I see you, I know you, and I care, and I will preserve your life. Do not worry about your obscurity. So now what? There's oftentimes we read a story and we're tempted to imagine that the moral of the story is to act like one of the characters. And in most of the stories of Scripture, that's not actually the point. But this time it is. So, two points of application for us today. The first is be like the Rechabites. We didn't talk about them much in the message, but you heard their story earlier in the service. And what it is, is the Rechabites, like the people around Jeremiah, have so embodied the words that have been passed down from generation to generation that it's simply who they are. It simply flows out of their life. There's a scene in the movie Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade, Sean Connery and Harrison Ford, and the whole plot, as you probably know, revolves around this journal that Sean Connery's character wrote with all the clues to where the Holy Grail is. And the journal's been stolen, and so Harrison Ford's asking him, all right, we know where the grail is. When we get there, what do we have to do? And he says, there's three tests you have to pass. He says, well, what are they? He says, I don't know. He says, what do you mean you don't know? He says, I wrote it down so I wouldn't have to remember. I think oftentimes we are that way. If it's not written down, we won't remember it. I think we need to remember so that it doesn't have to be written down. I'll give you a little bit of a glimpse into my craft. You may notice I have a piece of paper up here, which I don't usually have. And whenever I have a piece of paper up here, just know this. It's so that I only say what I mean to say and don't go long. So this is supposed to be a gift to you to try to keep me on task. I don't often have a piece of paper up here with me because of something that someone said to me, another pastor several years ago, that just lodged in my brain and I couldn't shake. They said, pastors often rely on notes. If it is something profound enough to be said out loud, it shouldn't have to be written down. If it's so profound, it should have penetrated your heart to where there's no way you'll forget to say it. Now, that's not to say there's not a place for having notes, but for me, I realized that this was a way that was a shortcut so that what I was meaning to say would not have to take root in my heart. If what I'm saying is not taken root in my heart, I have no business saying it. And the same is true for all of us. If the word of God does not flow naturally out of us, then it has not truly impacted us. Our job is to incarnate the word, to embody the word, to be the word on living display. If all it is is a book on our shelves that we use as a reference work, 
It is not doing what it is meant to do. This is Jeremiah's new covenant, the law not written on tablets of stone or on parchment scrolls or thin leaf gold-bound paper. It's written on hearts. This is what God desires. So be like the Rechabites. Be the kind of person that without a written text, the love of Jesus flows naturally out from you. The written word has a role to play. Do not misunderstand me. But if it stops at being a written word, we have not appropriated it correctly. Be like the Rechabites. Secondly, be like Baruch. And by this I mean, do what you can. Baruch is someone who stands out to me because he has this technical skill that for God's people was not what we think of as the core competency for carrying forward the word of God. It was mostly oral. A scribe was not someone who was necessarily writing down new things. They were bureaucrats mostly. They were recording transactions and counting sheep coming into the temple and managing inventory. Baruch is this very technical sort of person who says, I've got a skill and I'm going to bring it to bear on Jeremiah's ministry because I see Jeremiah doing something. I'm going to do what I can. I'm not a prophet. I haven't gotten that call, but I want to be involved. This is nothing more than an Old Testament instance of spiritual gifts in the body of Christ functioning. Everyone is essential. Everyone matters. Everyone is seen by God. There are no dispensable people. None of us is disposable. All of us are essential. Do what you can. And this is really important because especially in this season, when what it means to do church has been scattered, it has led to a yet increased reliance on professionals to do the work of ministry. And that is a shame. And our tradition for more than half a millennium has oftentimes relied more on professionals than is good or healthy. And the simple fact is this. Eugene Peterson talks about this in his book on the life of David called Leap Over a Wall. He says, if you ask the average believer and get a room of 10 people, who is it that's had the most impact on your spiritual life? If you had to pick the person with the most impact on your spiritual life, maybe one in 10 would name a pastor. Maybe. The simple fact is, if we are relying on professionals to impact people's spirituality most significantly, we are going to wield far too little of an impact. If I were asked that question, who's had the most impact on your spiritual life, the answer would be Ed Huber. Ed Huber was a NASA engineer that lived in Southern California and was a member of the church that I grew up attending, and he was also the third and fourth grade Sunday school teacher, week in and week out, all the years of my third and fourth grade years. Ed Huber had no formal training in anything biblical, theological, pastoral, or otherwise. He knew how to build space shuttles. He worked on the Apollo projects. He was really good at it. But I didn't care about that, except it was really cool that he built spaceships. He also had a DeLorean, which was awesome, and I got to ride in it a couple of times. He loved Jesus, and he loved us. That's all that mattered. And so after I was not in his Sunday school class anymore, I kept hanging out with him. He had a retirement home ministry once a month where he would go and do services at a retirement home, and he'd take the kids along. And I kept going even after I wasn't in his Sunday school class anymore. And every time I came back from Romania on furlough 
And when I came back permanently, I'd look Ed up and I'd get together with him and he'd speak into my life. More than anybody, perhaps beside my parents, I exclude my parents from this equation, Ed Huber, NASA engineer, had the greatest impact on me spiritually. And I bet that Ed Huber, like a lot of Baruchs, is the answer to that question. If we are willing to bring to God what we can, we can have impact that is immeasurable. Without Baruch, we don't have the book of Jeremiah. Jeremiah doesn't put this book together by himself. Be like the Rechabites, incarnate the word, and be like Baruch, do what you can for impacting the world for Jesus. Let's pray. God, we thank you for your gifts to us. We thank you for the people that you have gifted to us. And we thank you that even when, and perhaps especially when, it feels like we are alone and our life is nothing, as Baruch said, but pain and misery and burden, that you see us, that you know us, that you care, and that you will not allow us to fail to endure, that your word lives on in our lives if we will but heed it. So we ask that you would give us ears to hear and the will to do. And we ask it because of Jesus. Amen. Thanks for listening to this week's message. I pray you were blessed by what you heard. We hope you'll join us again next week, whether on this podcast, via our live stream, or in person. Until then, watch for our bonus episodes with reflections on this message and a preview of next week's message that drop throughout the week. Until then, may the God who loves us beyond our ability to think or imagine bless you, keep you, be gracious to you, look upon you with favor, and give you peace.